I'm Marion Jones, wishing you a warm welcome to City Breaks London, Episode 4, The Tower of London. Surely one of the must-sees for any first visit to London. So much to see, so many stories to hear and take in, that maybe one visit's not going to be enough, and so repeat visits, always a good idea, if you're someone who goes to London now and then. There's loads to see, of course. The towers, the moat, the chapel, the execution sites. And you'll get all the more out of all those things if you know a little of the history that sits behind them and you take your imagination along with you so that you can picture the various imprisoned kings and beheaded queens and, I'm afraid, even murdered children. Actually, historians would put a question mark in there. More about that later. OK, so the plan for the episode is really to focus on the stories from across the centuries which lie behind this building. Most are matters of historical fact, some are legends. Let's have a look at all the most interesting ones. And then let's finish with a quick rundown of what to see when you actually visit the Tower, which buildings are the ones you really shouldn't miss. So that all in all, when you go, you really do know what you're looking at. OK, starting at the beginning, William the Conqueror, newly arrived in England, proud of his victory, bit nervous that people were going to rebel against him. One of the first things he did in the 1070s was have this massive stone fortress built in London. Yes, it was partly for defence, but actually it was also meant to scream out how powerful the new king was. His building would dominate the skyline in London, and Londoners would know that he meant business. Our very own Boris Johnson, currently Prime Minister, put it quite well himself in his book on... London when he wrote the following. It, that's the Tower of London, it told the English that they had been beaten. They had been thrashed, licked, stuffed, conquered by a race of people who built great dungeons and keeps on a scale that had never been attempted before on the island. And then a bit later he goes on to explain the whole thing was an insult. The original building took about 20 years to finish. Stonemasons were brought in from Normandy brought their own stone with them, limestone which had been quarried in the area of France around the city of Caen, but they did deign to let the English join in with the actual work of building the place. Of course it wasn't all done in one go, lots of kings that came later added their bits, most notably perhaps Henry III and Edward I, who added more towers, enlarged the moat, decided they deserved more magnificent royal lodgings inside. And so a fortress grew up, which it was expected that nobody would be able to break into. In fact, they'd reckoned without the English peasant, because there has been one occasion in history when indeed people have broken into the tower, taken it by storm, if you will, and that was in the year 1381, at the time of the peasants' revolt, when on their way to make their protest about all the new taxes in the city of London, they stopped off at the tower, rushed in, dragged out an archbishop and a king's treasurer, and murdered them. Not a pretty story, but it does prove that if you were determined enough, you could get inside. Another interesting story from a little bit later in the 14th century, 1399 in fact, is the story of Richard II, who was imprisoned in the Tower because of his ongoing quarrel with the Duke of Lancaster, who in fact was going to defeat him eventually and become Henry IV. Henry's view was that Richard should be, quote, imprisoned and deposed, for he is not worthy to wear a crown, but ought to be deprived of all honour and to be kept all his life in prison with bread and water. Henry got his way, and just to underline his point, 
He made sure that four of Richard's knights were executed. Richard was made to watch. And so some of Richard's other knights, fearing for their own lives as well as the king's, pleaded with him to invite Henry to the tower for a meeting. And this was duly done. So picture the scene. Henry, Duke of Lancaster, takes a barge down the river to the tower, gets out and is taken to meet King Richard. Richard realises that the only thing that might save him is a grovelling apology, so this he duly offers. Quote, Cousin, all things considered, I know well I have greatly trespassed against you and against other noblemen of my blood. By diverse things I perceive I shall never have pardon nor come to peace. Wherefore, with my own free will and liberal will, I will resign to you the heritage of the crown of England, and I require you to take the gift thereof with the resignation. Powerful stuff. The crown of England is changing hands. Henry was pleased to accept the honours, but as it turned out, he didn't trust that Richard would no longer be any sort of problem to him. As the chronicler writing the story puts it, it was not long after that true tidings ran through London, how Richard of Bordeaux was dead, but how he died and by what means I could not tell when I wrote this chronicle. We do know that a carriage was ordered, pulled by four black horses, to take Richard's body from the tower through the streets of London to Cheapside, where it paused, and some 20,000 people came to see it. Henry was determined that everybody would believe that King Richard, lying there in his open coffin, truly was dead. More drama in 1471, when another English king, Henry VI this time, is imprisoned in the Tower too. Again, it's not entirely sure what exactly happened to him, but as a Lancastrian king, he had been imprisoned by Yorkists, so it doesn't take a genius to work out, possibly, what did happen to him. Of course, the two sides had their own story. Some said that he had died of melancholy after hearing that his only son, Prince Edward, who was 17, had been killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Others said, no, no, he was stabbed to death while at prayer. What I can tell you that every year since 1923, there has been a ceremony here in the Tower called the Ceremony of the Lilies and the Roses, held on the 21st of May, which is the anniversary of Henry's death, and attended by people from Eton College and King's College, Cambridge, both of those illustrious institutions having been founded by King Henry. Perhaps the best-known story of all about murder in the Tower is the one concerning the two young princes. After the death of their father, Edward IV, the natural thing was that the older of the two boys, Edward, who was twelve, would become king, and some of his family members duly escorted him to London for this to happen. En route, however, they were met by his uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who said that he would take Edward into his care, take him to London, and place him in the Tower of London for, quote, his protection. Edward's mother, Elizabeth Woodville, heard about this, was immediately naturally very alarmed, took herself and the rest of her children to Westminster Abbey to seek sanctuary. Nobody would be able to attack them in there. Uncle Richard decided that the second son, ironically another Richard, should join his brother in the tower and sent for him. Elizabeth Woodville tried to resist, but in the end she did agree, and off he went. It was to be the last time she saw either of her sons. Within weeks, Parliament had declared that the two princes were illegitimate, and so their claim to the throne was discredited, and their uncle had himself crowned King Richard III. That was on the 6th of July. So, what had happened to the boys? 
The last known sighting of them had been on June the 16th, when a chronicler wrote, quote, The children of King Edward were seen shooting arrows and playing in the garden of the tower sundry times. A second chronicler, an Italian, a diplomat at Edward's court, wrote about what he had seen and drew his own conclusion. The boys, he said, were, quote, withdrawn to the inner apartments of the tower proper, and day by day began to be seen more rarely behind the bars and windows, until at length they ceased to appear altogether. Already there is a suspicion that they have been done away with. Historians have been debating ever since what actually happened. The chances are that we'll never find out for certain. But on balance, most historians agree that Richard probably was involved, even if he didn't do the deed himself, and that the boys were indeed murdered. Somebody writing just 30 years or so after their disappearance was Thomas More in his History of Richard III, and he certainly saw Richard as the villain. He can't have known the details, but he does describe what he thought probably happened in quite a lot of detail. Quote, the innocent children lying in their beds, Miles Forrest and John Dighton, about midnight, came into the chamber and suddenly lapped them up among the clothes, so bewrapped them and entangled them, keeping down by force the feather bed and pillows hard into their mouths, that within a while, smothered and stifled, they gave up to God their innocent souls. Children's bones were indeed found buried in the grounds of the tower, and in 1933 they were re-examined. Scientists said, yes, they proved to be from two boys aged about 12 and 10, so that made it seem much more likely, without actually proving it, that the boys had died soon after their arrival at the tower. The bones were reburied in a corner of Westminster Abbey, and every now and then somebody suggests that they could be subjected to DNA testing now, which would perhaps allow scientists to prove whether they were or weren't the royal children. But for the moment at least it seems that it's been decided to leave the bones resting in peace. So perhaps we really will never find out the truth. Moving into the 16th century, there are more intriguing stories, most of them quite bloodthirsty, so it's nice to start with one that seemed to be, at least at the time, a happier story. And that is the arrival, in 1533, at the tower of Henry VIII's new bride, Anne Boleyn. She came by boat, Henry was there waiting to meet her, greeted her, according to chroniclers, quote, with loving countenance at the postern by the water's side, and kissed her publicly. A feast was held in Anne's honour, and the next day she and the king processed in triumph through the city of London to Westminster Abbey. Only two years later there was the execution on Tower Hill of Thomas More, who had incurred the wrath of King Henry by refusing to agree to his divorce from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. And there's a very moving description in a book called The Life of Thomas More by William Roper of the scene which played out in the tower when the message was brought to Thomas More that he was going to be executed the very next morning. Just listen to what he said when he received this terrible news and listen particularly to the reply he's given at the end where the messenger feels obliged to say what he thinks Henry would have said in response. So here's Thomas More, who's just been told that the morning will bring his execution. Quote, For your good tidings, I most heartily thank you. I have always been bounden to the King's Highness for the benefits and honours that he has still from time to time most bountifully heaped upon me, and yet more bound am I to his grace for putting me into this place, 
where I have had convenient time and space to have remembrance of my end. And so, help me God, most of all, Master Pope, am I bound to his Highness, that it pleaseth him so shortly to rid me out of the miseries of this wretched world. And therefore will I not fail earnestly to pray for his grace, both here and also in another world. The king's pleasure is further, quoth Master Pope, that at your execution you shall not use many words. Henry knew he was doing a terrible thing, and he feared that someone as eloquent as Thomas More would make this clear. And there's a description too, a little later in the book, of Thomas More's final few minutes, when he even managed to make a sort of joke to the executioner. He was standing at the foot of the scaffold, just about to climb it, when he said, I pray you, Master Lieutenant, see me safely up, and for my coming down, let me shift for myself. It wasn't very long after that that Anne herself was back at the tower, accused of adultery and therefore treason. A trial was held, perhaps I ought to say a show trial, in the Great Hall at the tower. Three thousand people came to watch. Twenty-six lords tried her, including her own father, and that itself was a historic moment because it was the first time a Queen of England had ever been tried. She was found guilty. Her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, was asked to pronounce the sentence and declared that she would be burnt here within the tower or else have thy head cut off. Henry was going to be asked to decide. Anne's immediate response with all those people listening was, Father, thou who art the way, the life and the truth, know whether I have deserved this death. There's a description of Anne Boleyn walking across the grounds of the tower to the place of her execution in a book called The Six Wives of Henry VIII by Antonia Fraser, who tells us that Anne was wearing a mantle of ermine over a loose gown of dark grey damask which was trimmed with fur and under which she wore a crimson petticoat. She spoke briefly, saying, Masters, I here humbly submit me to the law as the law hath judged me. She even went on to pray for Henry. Christ would, quote, Save my sovereign and master the king, the most godly, noble and gentle prince that is, and long to reign over you. And here, in Antonia Fraser's words, is what happened next. Anne Boleyn now knelt down. Her ladies removed her headdress, leaving the white coif to hold up her thick black hair away from her long neck. One of her ladies put a blindfold round her eyes. She said, To Jesu Christ I commend my soul. To watchers it then seemed that suddenly the hangman smote off her head at a stroke with his sword which appeared by magic, unnoticed by anyone including the kneeling woman. In fact, the famous sword of Calais had been concealed in the straw surrounding the block in order to get Anne to position her head correctly and to stop her looking instinctively backwards. The hangman had called, Bring me the sword, to someone standing on the steps nearby. Anne Boleyn turned her head. The deed was done. We know that Sir William Kingston was present, and he wrote afterwards, The Queen died boldly. We know that the ladies who attended her wrapped her head and her body in white cloths, and that it was buried without ceremony in the nearby Chapel Royal. Centuries later, in 1876, her remains were unearthed and reburied under a marble pavement in the church inscribed with her name. Only six years later, Henry's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, was also accused of adultery, and, without any trial, was condemned by the House of Lords, who said that she must forfeit her life and goods. She was only nineteen, 
which makes it even more heartrending to hear how she had asked while imprisoned in the tower for a scaffold to be brought to her so that she could practice how to behave nobly at her death. And the night before, she too found words of praise for Henry, saying that, quote, she merited a thousand deaths for so offending a king who had treated her so graciously. Not much more than a decade later, a third English queen was also beheaded here in the tower. This time, Lady Jane Grey, even younger, only 17. She was a victim of a plot. Other people had decided that she should be queen because she was a Protestant and this was in the reign of Mary I, whose strict Catholicism made her lots of enemies. Poor Jane was horrified when told that she was to be queen and said, The crown is not my right, it pleases me not. Mary is the rightful heir. But she was forced into it by her parents and her husband and the end result, after only nine days reigning, was that she was decreed no longer queen and imprisoned in the tower. She was found guilty. There was an idea that the queen would perhaps spare her life because she was so young. But Mary feared that if Jane were allowed to live, she would always be a threat. And so she was sentenced to execution for high treason. You may be familiar with the very poignant description of her last few moments, when, blindfolded, she tried to find the block on which she was to put her head and couldn't. Here's a description given in Alison Weir's book, Traitors of the Tower. What shall I do? she cried in mounting panic. Where is it? No one moved as she groped in the air. Then someone came and guided her hands, and she laid her head down. Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit, she cried. The axe came down. One witness wrote that he had never seen so much blood. The headsman lifted the head. Behold, the head of a traitor, he called out. Another very famous prisoner in the tower was Guy Fawkes, taken there in 1606 after his attempt to blow up the Houses of Parliament. As soon as he was arrested, King James I ordered that he should be taken to the tower and said, quote, If he will not otherways confess, the gentler tortures are first to be used upon him, and then, step by step, you may employ the harsher, and so speed your good work. And, imprisoned in the White Tower, Guy Fawkes was subjected to the most horrible torture, including being put on the rack. And although he held out for several days, he did finally name his co-conspirators and sign a confession. And actually the sight of his handwriting, as it normally was, compared with the signature of his confession after torture, does indicate what a terrible time he'd been through. The wobbly, spidery writing indicates a man who could barely function any more. And this was borne out too in the description of his execution, which took place in fact in Westminster Yard and not here at the Tower. In the words of a contemporary account, quote, Last of all came the great devil of all, Guy Fawkes. His body being weak with the torture and sickness, he was scarce able to go up the ladder, yet with much ado, by the help of the hangman, went high enough to break his neck by the fall. The writer goes on to claim that Guy Fawkes's death was, quote, to the great joy of all the beholders, that the land was ended of so wicked a villainy. Another famous prisoner was Walter Raleigh, once a favourite of Elizabeth I, for his daring-do, his explorations of the new world, his good looks. But eventually he became unpopular, and in fact he was imprisoned three times, no less, both by Queen Elizabeth and by her successor James I. Unlike many of the other prisoners, we know that he led a relatively comfortable existence inside the tower. He grew exotic plants, he wrote poetry, 
He studied chemistry and history. He had 500 books at his disposal in the Tower of London's library. And eventually, he started writing one himself, a book called The History of the World. We know that he still found it hard to bear his time in the Tower, one of his jailers commenting that, I never saw so strange a dejected mind as in Sir Walter Raleigh. I am exceedingly cumbered with him. Five or six times a day he sendeth for me in such passions as I see his fortitude is impotent to support his grief. Did he behave himself once he was released, though? No, I'm afraid he didn't, and eventually he was executed for treason on the orders of James I in 1618. And just one final story of the many, many things which have occurred in the Tower over the centuries, something which happened in 1671, namely an attempt to steal the crown jewels. One Sir Gilbert Taylor was master of the jewel house at the time, and he gave the main task of keeping card over the jewels to one of his servants, the rather elderly Talbot Edwards. Colonel Blood took to visiting the tower. He befriended the servant, bringing gifts for his wife, inviting himself to dinner, that sort of thing. And on one occasion, he brought a friend or two with him and persuaded Talbot Edwards to show him upstairs into the room where the jewels were kept. Of course, as soon as he got there, the servant was attacked and the treasures were rifled. They were just stuffing their pockets with a crown and a scepter and this and that when they were disturbed because Edwards's young son had heard a noise and came to see what was happening. So Blood and his friends had to run away. They rushed over the drawbridge, being chased all the way, until there was eventually what was described in the paper the next day, the London Gazette, as a robustious struggle. Eventually they were stopped, they were captured, Blood was imprisoned in the tower himself, in the White Tower, but, quite bizarrely, when you hear of some of the people who were executed for what you might call much lesser crimes, the king, Charles II, decided to pardon him and sent him away to live in Ireland with a pension of £500 a year. If you're wondering what the wonderfully lamed Colonel Blood actually looked like, you can find out because his picture hangs in the National Portrait Gallery. So all of that just by way of a flavour of some of the things which have happened in the Tower over the centuries. Turning attention to what you might actually want to see when you go and visit it, I'm going to do a very quick rundown of the main places. I don't think endless detail encourages anyone, and it really is one of those places where what you actually need to do is wander around, drink in the atmosphere, and just think about some of the things that have happened in those buildings. OK, so the tower is in fact 13 towers, surrounding the original White Tower, all encircled by what used to be a moat, which was fed from the Thames, but which has been drained since the middle of the 19th century. Definitely look out for Traitor's Gate. It's not the entrance today, but in the days when most visitors arrived at the Tower by river, it was the main way to get inside. Named Traitor's Gate, of course, because this was the way that all the many prisoners who were brought to the Tower came. Definitely visit the main White Tower, which I've seen described as the most complete 11th century palace in Europe. It was begun in 1076, but as I said earlier, lots of other kings through the ages have added bits to it. Christopher Wren himself, for example, redesigned part of it and added the windows. Definitely go up to the first floor where you'll see the gorgeous St John's Chapel, built originally to be the royal family's private chapel in the tower. 
one description of it which I found particularly poignant was that of the scene just after the death of Elizabeth of York, Henry the Seventh's Queen. She died here in childbirth in 1503 and her body lay in the chapel before her funeral, surrounded by 800 candles. Also in the White Tower you can see some of the Royal Armoury. Much of it's been moved to Leeds up in northern England, but some of the things which are still here include two suits of armour side by side, the absolutely massive one worn by Henry VIII, and the really rather tiny one next to it worn by his son, Edward VI. Also in the White Tower you will find an exhibition on some of the executions which have taken place here. And the other tower I would definitely visit is the Bloody Tower, so named because it's the one where the two young princes were held and possibly where they were murdered. So inside you will find an exhibition on them, along with a long list of other people who were also imprisoned here, including such worthies as the Archbishop Cranmer, the Protestant martyrs Bishop Ridley and Bishop Latimer, Sir Walter Raleigh. One of the most popular buildings to visit is the Jewel House. If you want to see the crown jewels, you probably have to queue up, this being the building where the kings and queens of England have stored their crowns and robes and all the stuff that goes in under the heading of ceremonial regalia. The crown jewels have been here since the 17th century and absolute highlights would include the coronation spoon, which was a 12th century silver spoon covered in gilt, which has been used at the coronation of every monarch in Britain since James I in 1603. It's used to anoint the sovereign in that very solemn moment right at the heart of the service. There's also something called St Edward's Crown, named after Edward the Confessor, although in fact not dating back as far as his reign. It's believed there was an Edward's Crown, which was used in coronations, but the parliamentarians during the Civil War melted it down. And so when the monarchy was restored, a new crown was needed for the new king, Charles II, and this one was commissioned as a replacement. So it's called St Edward's Crown after Edward the Confessor but the king for whom it was made was crowned some six centuries after his death. Look out too for the Queen Mother's crown, because that has the very famous Kohinoor diamond in it, presented to Queen Victoria in 1849, subject of much dispute because India would quite like it back. And don't miss either the imperial state crown, the one worn on state occasions, for example, the opening of Parliament. I read a description of it on the Royal Collection Trust website, which tells us that there are, wait for it, 2,868 diamonds in it, along with 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 5 rubies and 283 pearls. If you're wondering why the Queen, and indeed any monarch of Britain, needs two crowns, the reason is given. Before the Civil War, the coronation crown was always kept and used at Westminster Abbey, but the monarch didn't leave wearing it. It was left in the Abbey, and so a second crown was needed for him or her to wear, so that everybody would know as they came out that the coronation had indeed taken place. Outside the main buildings, you probably want to have a look at Tower Green, which is quite a little patch of grass, really, inside the walls, where some executions took place. Most, in fact, were on Tower Hill, outside the tower, but a few victims, I think it's ten in total, were granted the, quote, privilege of being spared the very public execution that happened there and they met their deaths here on this little green. They would include the three queens, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard and Jane Seymour. And just behind Tower Green you can see the Chapel Royal of St Peter ad Vincula, which is the chapel where all three of them are buried. 
And just to mention then a few other bits and pieces about the tower, look out for the famous yeoman warders, who you've probably seen on postcards all over London. They are the descendants of the personal bodyguard chosen by Henry VIII, known as the yeoman warders. Henry decided they would stay in the tower and guard it permanently, and they became known as beef-eaters because they were deemed to be able to eat as much beef as they wanted from the king's table. In those days, they always wore the red dress uniforms, the scarlet and gold Tudor costumes, which are how they're normally photographed today, and which they still wear for important occasions, such as a gun salute or some other ceremonial duty. Otherwise, they wear what's known rather whimsically as Victorian undress, which is a dark blue, much more practical uniform. Know, though, that these are actually all ex-soldiers with a distinguished military career behind them. So even if they spend most of their time locking and unlocking the tower and carrying out ceremonies like the Ceremony of the Keys, you should still bear in mind that it doesn't do to mess with them. There are aspects of the tower which were very important in the past and which no longer apply, but it's quite interesting to know that at the tower originally was the Mint, It was the place where all the coins of the realm were made from the reign of Edward I until 1810. And the security that was needed for all of that is probably the reason why the kings and queens took to locking away their other valuables there and the reason why the crown jewels are still there today. Also, did you know that the tower from the 1200s onwards right up until 1835 was a royal menagerie or a zoo, if you will? Medieval kings and queens were quite often given an exotic wild animal by a visiting monarch or a subject who'd been somewhere exotic, and so they needed somewhere to put them. For example, in 1235, Henry III was presented with three leopards. Well, they were known as leopards, although it's thought today that actually they were probably lions. Anyway, he decided to have them kept at the tower, and so the collection was begun. They were joined as time went on by a polar bear given to Henry III in 1252 and an African elephant for whom a huge elephant house was built. In the 17th century, James I had a viewing gallery built at the lion's enclosure for, quote, the lions to drink and wash themselves in. All sorts of other animals joined them over the centuries and it wasn't until 1835, by which time there were 150 animals or so there, that it was decided to close all this down and send them to be kept in a new home in Regent's Park, London Zoo as we know it today. Do also keep a lookout for the ravens of the tower, because one of the most famous legends of the tower concerns them. It is said that should the ravens ever leave the tower, then both it and the kingdom will fall. This actually nearly happened in World War II, because there was heavy bombing, and at one point it was noted that only one raven had survived. Today, however, there are seven of them, and there's a dedicated yeoman warder, known as the Raven Master, to care for them. And just in case they do get ideas about flying away and putting the UK under threat, I'm afraid to tell you that they have their one of their flight feathers trimmed to stop them flying away. You can take a tour of the tower under the guidance of one of the yeoman guards, and you will hear all these stories and many more from them if you do that. Quite something I would recommend. They'll tell you perhaps some of the ghost stories on your way round. You won't be surprised to hear that there are ghosts haunting the tower. It's said, for example, that Anne Boleyn stalks the site of her execution on Tower Green. The ghost of Arbella Stuart is believed to be still on the loose. She was a cousin of Queen Elizabeth I, who was arrested and starved to death 
while in captivity in the tower because she had married without royal permission. And the most significant of all the ghost stories, perhaps, is the one which tells us that the two young princes in the tower are also thought to revisit regularly. So I hope I've given the impression that there really is masses to see at the tower, that you can have a very interesting, certainly morning or afternoon. I think a whole day wouldn't go amiss, actually, if you want to have a good look at everything and hear all the stories. Why not take a trip down the river first and arrive by boat, just as everybody did, from the 11th century when the tower was first built, right up until public transport went mechanised. The tower is one of London's most symbolic, iconic buildings, but of course there'll be more, and we're off to visit those too. So in the next episode, we're going to leave the environs of the City of London, where we spent the first three episodes, and head west, to Westminster in fact, stopping next week off at Westminster Abbey, and the week after that at the Palace of Westminster, better known perhaps as the Houses of Parliament. Two more buildings full of history, full of stories, and definitely must-sees for anyone who's going to claim to know London. So I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode. I hope very much that you'll join me again next week for the first of our two visits to Westminster. And for the moment, I'd just like to thank you very much for listening and say goodbye.